Welcome to Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. Here is your host, David Ponraj, founder and CEO of Economic Impact Catalyst. Melissa, welcome to Breaking Down Barriers. Well, thanks for having me, David. Tell us a little bit about your work and tell us a little bit about your current position. Sure. So uh, I really started my career as an entrepreneur myself. Uh, and I got into this world really out of desperation, like so many entrepreneurs do. You know, I had started a small business uh, and I had this box of receipts under my bed uh, and it was growing full because the one thing I knew about business when I started my business is that you have to keep receipts. Um, that was my exposure to it. And so uh, I was I was getting desperate because I knew I had to do something with all these receipts. I just didn't know what it was. And so I actually wandered into the Kauffman Foundation like off the street one day um, and went up to the front desk and said, hey, you know, I hope I heard that you folks do entrepreneurship stuff here. Can you help me find a tax guy? Uh, and someone like very, very politely said, uh, you know, that's not exactly what we do here, but uh, go into this room. There's some entrepreneurs hanging out uh, and they'll know how to help you. And so what I ended up doing is wandering into the first week of a program called One Million Cups that I got very involved with. Um, you know, initially on that first day, I found a tax guy. Uh, I got engaged with the community and out of a sense of, of wanting to pay it back, I became uh, an organizer of the initial kind of 1 million t- cups volunteer team in Kansas City, helped to grow that program. And that really led to a career in entrepreneurship support. So that's what I've been doing um, for the last 15 years of, of my life, uh, really trying to help build the entrepreneurial community in Kansas City across the Midwest uh, through a number of roles through running an entrepreneur support organization, uh, by working at the Kauffman Foundation uh, as a funder of entrepreneur support, and now working in entrepreneurial policy at FAS. And so the Federation of American Scientists, where I work today, uh, we're a nonprofit advocacy organization that really uh, thinks that with the right ideas, uh, the right talent, and uh, the right kind of technology that we can solve our generation's greatest problems. And so we try to embed that great talent Uh, technology and ideas in government in order to help build a healthy, safe, prosperous, and equitable society. And and my contribution to that work is in leading our entrepreneurship and ecosystems policy team, uh, which is really fun and exciting work, especially right now, uh, as the federal government is so focused on the potential for building entrepreneurial ecosystems across the country. This is a fascinating conversation already. I have so many questions. I'll ask one basic question. You are clearly one of the pioneers in this space, given that you've seen this over a decade and a half versus a lot of what seems like entrepreneurship-led economic development, especially in the economic development realm, seems to have come up in the last five years. Because I was in Indianapolis at an IEDC conference in 2019. And I was talking to some folks about entrepreneurship-led economic development or entrepreneurial ecosystems. And people 
in the economic development profession would take like a second take or they would like take a step back and say, wait a second, that means nothing to us. What is this all about? And this was just 2019. Mm-hmm. And I know that that year Kaufman actually announced that they are going to invest alongside IEDC, the International Economic Development Council, to bring this field to economic development. Can you walk me from 15 years ago to today and what do you think has fundamentally changed in this line of work? Yeah, well, it's hard because I I can barely remember. I've been doing this work for so long. (laughs) My my memories of the early days are maybe not as good as they once were. Um, But I think the thing that really characterized those early days of of building entrepreneurial community, um, you know, around, in my view, like the era of Google Fiber coming to Kansas City, which is really what kicked off a new generation of entrepreneurial organization in Kansas City. Um, it was a really exciting time. We had a lot of energy. Uh, we uh, were all building companies, but we were not maybe well supported by the orthodoxy uh, or by the typical civic community. Um, and over time, we really evolved as ecosystem builders uh, to the point where Sometimes I think it's hard even for people in this line of work to recognize how much progress we've made because over the course of these last 15 years, we've all been fighting so hard, not just uh, you know for our entrepreneurs, but for relevance, um, to be recognized for the contributions that we actually make to regional economies across the country. And so when you're in that underdog position for such a long time, I think it's really hard to step back uh, and recognize how far we've come. And the reality is that today, you know, we've seen a sea change in how people think about entrepreneurship. Not only is it at the heart of the economic development uh, profession in a way that I think is appropriate and always has been, uh, but the federal government is standing alongside us as ecosystem builders, making $80 billion worth of investments in in building innovation ecosystems across the country, using our language, using our talking points. And so I think it's hard, uh, you know, for for ecosystem builders who are used to being under-resourced, who are used to kind of working outside of the typical civic structures to realize, hey, we've made it. Now we're recognized as the civic structure. And how do we start stepping into that kind of positional power and also use that along with our kind of our natural leadership abilities to really help not just kind of move a section of our community forward as we always have, but really deepen that engagement and think about the entirety of our city's economy. Think about the entirety of our national economy and start to act with a sense of responsibility in that regard. Let me play devil's advocate for just a minute and and ask, why do you think this time around it will be different? Because my fear is that if we focus on building infrastructure to the point where we're building infrastructure for the sake of infrastructure, we will just make that same problem worse. And I'll give you two statistics to kind of help back my stance here. One, the rate at which businesses successfully start or the rate at which businesses start has not changed in the last 80 years. 
when there is a pandemic or a downturn, it typically sees a spike, mainly from the fact that a lot of people who are laid off would would first try their hands at entrepreneurship before they uh, decide if that's for them or not. We haven't seen that change. We also haven't seen any movement in wealth creation, especially for our underrepresented communities. I was looking at a study from the St. Louis Fed where the cash on hand for a black business is like under five days. Things like that, mm-hmm. right? So why do you think it will be different this uh, this time around? And I think this is the probably the most important question we need to ask ourselves so we don't lose this once in a generation opportunity to significantly make a difference. Yeah. I mean, there's absolutely no guarantee that it will be different. That's the first thing that I would say. Just by by virtue of there being funding for innovation ecosystem building activities doesn't necessarily mean that it will be different. And I would put the responsibility for ensuring that it's different at the feet of ecosystem builders across the country. So we uh, we have an opportunity to step up to make ecosystem building and innovation ecosystem building specifically the way that our communities think about building the future of our economy. Uh, but one thing that that might endanger that potential is if people kind of sit in their past experiences and don't recognize this huge influx of attention and funding for innovation ecosystem building for the potential that it has. And the potential that it has is to really totally, you know, create a new structure for our economic development system across the country. That's really what we're doing here. Um, when it comes to things like inequitable outcomes and firm formation rates, which have been not just stagnant, but declining since the 1970s, you know, I think that is all an illustration of the fact that economic development driven by attraction and retention doesn't work. It doesn't develop our economy, and that ought to be a critical uh, qualifying criteria for saying that you're engaging in economic development. You have to you have to actually then develop the economy um, and, and attraction and retention just doesn't do that. And so why I think we've got to get back to first principles a little bit. So forgive me for being a little bit academic, but I think, you know, sometimes it's worth saying what everyone knows in their gut, um, you know, out loud and, and, and making it clear why our gut reaction is the way it is. So let me attempt to do that really quickly. So first off, you know, we know that entrepreneurship has been declining really since the mid 1970s. Uh, and, and no one truly knows why. This is troubling. But we do know that really macroeconomic growth, so the growth of one country's economy relative to another country's economy, fundamentally comes from productivity gains. And productivity gains, uh, so the business sector being more productive as a whole, those come from something called the reallocative efficiency of, of new firms. And what that really means in plain English is taking resources away from things that aren't working and giving them to things that are working. And so when we talk about things like disruption, you know, new companies starting where old ones uh, are, are growing slowly or failing, that's an example of reallocative efficiency. Um, And so those productivity gains that come from entrepreneurship, when you think about it at a basic level, it's really kind of common sense. You know, there are things like 
the diffusion of new technology into existing firms or the creation of an entirely new industry. One of the examples that people often use when they talk about this is, you know, the creation of the railroad, uh, you know, spurred all of these different kinds of new innovative products and, and, uh, and industries. And then finally, you know, the productivity gains really come also from like the the pressure on existing firms to innovate and compete with new entrants in the market. So they feel the pressure to do things better and more efficiently um, and more cost effectively. And so that that's really why that's why entrepreneurship, why why firm formation, why just the act of entering a market is so critically economically important. That's why economic growth is derived from entrepreneurship. And I think it's really, really important to step back and, and kind of understand what we know in our gut to be true and, and, and understand why it is the way it is. So when you compare that though to, to inequality, to uh, lack of equity, to unjust wealth divides, I think one of the things really comes out that is a, an important factor and has been for uh, you know at least the entirety of my career, and that's the idea of necessity driven entrepreneurship versus opportunity driven entrepreneurship. And this is something that we worked on measuring um, while I was at Kaufman. I wasn't responsible for it, just to be clear, but there were brilliant people that put together an index of necessity versus opportunity driven entrepreneurship. So necessity entrepreneurship is like when you lose your job and you have to make ends meet you, and you start a business, but you never really intend to do that in the long term. And as soon as you get exposure to a job that pays you more money, that is more secure, that is a better fit for your family, you take that job. There's nothing wrong with that fundamentally. Like people are progressing and, and making more money and their families are better cared for and all those things. Like that's important and good, but it's just different than opportunity-driven entrepreneurship, which is recognizing a new opportunity and starting to grow a business to pursue, you know, a new market or a new idea, not just like supplement your income for survival. And this is really different than the way that I think a lot of times we talk about divisions in entrepreneurship. You know, traditionally, the, the biggest division that we've talked about in entrepreneurship is small business versus innovation driven enterprise, um, you know, or lifestyle versus venture backable entrepreneurship. I think we need to, to shift from thinking about what kind of business you're building to thinking about the motivations for building a business. Uh, because I think that's really gonna make a big difference in how we support entrepreneurs as they grow along the way. Um, so knowing that a lot of people uh, are using entrepreneurship or necessity entrepreneurship specifically as a way to supplement their income and grow their, grow their ability to care for their families like that uh, that's a kind of entrepreneurship that is always going to be um, passing. And so we have to think about it differently. Whereas the kind of entrepreneurship that we know grows the economy is opportunity entrepreneurship. And so the biggest thing that I think we should think of, think about to make entrepreneurship more equitable is making sure that a bigger fraction of the population has an opportunity to start a business doesn't just start a business. This is fascinating. If you are okay with it, I'd like to go down this path for one more question and uh, and then we can uh, kind of switch topics. Yeah. I'm trying my best to 
envision what 10 years from now look like? And there are two really critical questions for me. If it's if this is about innovation, and that's what the tech hubs are all about, which is mm-hmm. national security and innovation. My thing is, let's call it as that and say, sure, if it's driving innovation, and like you said, it's not just about business starts, but even when businesses fail, they have moved that industry forward or they have moved economic development forward. They've um, helped to uh, further research, et cetera. So even though you might not have successful starts, a start is a start in that it drives innovation and you need lots of failures to drive innovation. But in that Tech Hub's mission statement, it also also talks about equity. And that's where I have a, a, a large sense of skepticism because they are trying to solve two problems that are two completely different problems with the same set of money. And my question then is, who is the gatekeeper here? Who are these ecosystem builders who are going to, for the first time, actually equitably distribute this wealth? Because my skepticism says it is still going to be concentrated among the haves and the have-nots, right? The haves are going to keep having this. So is this the best strategy to solve the equity problem because we're combining and grouping them both and saying, hey, we're going to make it equitable and we're going to drive innovation, but the markers of success is innovation. And so is is this what, because when we talk about ecosystem building, we always try to look at it from an equity lens versus economic developers, right? If we try to just distinguish an economic developer from an ecosystem builder. So then my question is, first, is that the right strategy? And two, who is the gatekeeper? Like who gives us permission or who is going to now decide, right? Of course, the EDA will decide who gets the funding. But inside these 10 tech hubs, who decides what portion goes to a black chamber versus to a commercialization program at a university? And are we now going to have gatekeepers uh, with extraordinary power that will continue to further or make the problem even worse? Yeah, it's a great question, David. And I think this is really what a lot of ecosystem builders are asking right now. You know, I think there's a tendency of people to think of these innovation ecosystem programs that the federal government is funding as relevant only to, you know, what we would call tech-based entrepreneurial development, TBED, which is kind of like the the hottest, uh, you know, economic development idea of the 1990s. <laughs> um, and there's so much more to building inclusive innovation ecosystems right now. So let me let me try to describe what I think that looks like. The thing that I think is confusing to people is that we're really not very exact when we talk about entrepreneurship. So, you know, entrepreneurship, we know that it's at the heart of our greatest economic strengths and our greatest vulnerabilities, but it's an umbrella term. And so entrepreneurship represents everything from bakeries to biotech. And you know, looking at the, the the moment that we're in right now on a federal level for economic competitiveness across the country, uh, we know that we have to help build a stronger economy by building inclusive ecosystems and by building innovation ecosystems, but that these are kind of distinct policy areas and they're sometimes intention. So, you know, if you imagine a spectrum of the ways that you could design your economy, right? Like imagine that in designing an economy, 
where we're designing like a factory line, which I think is actually a really bad analogy. I'll tell you why in a second, but um, but just like imagine for a second that we were trying to to figure out how to set up, you know, a factory and the output of this factory was going to be economic growth. Well, you design systems in different ways to achieve different goals. You can design a system that is really uh, most efficient. Um, and that's really an innovation ecosystem. Innovation ecosystems make communities more competitive and more wealthy. Um, and, and the kinds of techniques that we use to build that system are things like industrial policy, tech-based economic development, investment in supply chains, lab to market commercialization, right? At the other end of the spectrum, we have the opportunity to design a more resilient line, right? So inclusive ecosystems really make communities, I think, more resilient and more just. And so uh, designing inclusive ecosystems requires tools like broadening access to capital, uh, having a clear front door to the startup community, small business coaching, mentorship available broadly. But they're very different strategies. Um, and so let me pause here for just one second to talk about the federal moment that we're in, because I think that's important. Because you have to ask the question, you know, why did Congress decide to invest $80 billion in place-based innovation across the country? And, and right now, um, I, I think a lot of ecosystem builders don't understand exactly how focused the conversation in Washington is on economic competition with China. It, that is the whole conversation. That is the justification uh, for this for this investment, and that is centered around those ten critical technologies that are listed in the Chips and Science Act. So things like uh, quantum computing, automation and robotics, um, advanced comms technology, biotech, you know, material science, energy storage. Um, these are really highly technical things that that the the government kind of writ large is saying, we're drawing a line in the sand. These are the things we need to to outcompete China on to be successful for the next, you know, 200 years economically. So that's what brings us tension, right? We've got the government, we've got Congress, we've got the Biden administration all saying, hey, from we have a top-down view of what's important here. It is an efficiency-based view of the world because we need to compete with China on the basis of efficiency, right? Then we've got local ecosystem builders all over the country saying, wait, that's not how we think about growth. In our view, you know, local planning, local control, equity, those are the things that need to be at the center of this process. So that's where that tension comes from. And I think the big potential of, uh, of what we need to do uh, as a country is we need to be able to articulate a third way. And that way is really, you know, inclusive ecosystem building. So what does it mean to build a system that takes the best of, of attempts to create efficiency and the best of attempts to broaden access to opportunity and, and, and mesh them? Um, it looks like, I think, balancing national and local priorities to build resilience in these competitive industries and drive equitable wealth creation. And if we don't put equitable wealth creation at the core of what we're doing in building these innovation ecosystems across the country, we'll create a really beautiful, really efficient system uh, 
that looks exactly like the system that the CCP has created. And that's, uh, you know, not a democratic system. And, and, and that's the danger here. So what does it look like to build innovation ecosystems? What are the tactics that you use? Well, you've got to really have broad community engagement and highly technical conversations. And you have to trust that people in your community will rise to the rise to the occasion to participate. You've got to have coalitions that advance these technical industries. It's not about having a gatekeeper. It can't be about having one gatekeeper. There's got to be broad engagement and everybody's got to pick up a piece of this uh, of, of this work that we need to do and carry it together. Um, there's got to be career pathways and training for good jobs alongside uh, ways to build, you know, career pathways for, for innovators. So you can't necessarily just say, hey, you know, our equity play is, you know, in the long term, we want to have, you know, a population of PhDs in biology in our community that looks more like the community at large, you have to say, and also we're going to create good jobs today. And also we're going to provide opportunities for business creation in this supply chain surrounding a critical technology area uh, that are far more inclusive than we have in the past. Uh, and that's kind of accessible opportunities for all businesses, including small businesses. And so the theme across all of those things is broader engagement in the community. And so I think that's the last thing that really represents a departure from economic development and why ecosystem builders are the right people to lead us forward in this new age. Economic developers uh, look to small rooms, closed door rooms uh, of their members and their civic partners and civic, you know, kingmakers to try and make decisions about how to move communities forward. And then they communicate those decisions to communities. Ecosystem builders have a conversation with community that is ongoing. And that's really how we need to behave in order to build inclusive ecosystems that truly have an equitable impact. And, you know, you can, you can expand the boundaries of this mental model to say, okay, over time, we're going to serve more bakeries because we're going to have more, you know, richer communities. We're going to have communities with more disposable income. We're going to have more people just period in our ecosystems and all that is, is true. But I think what we've got to get really disciplined on is getting out of that mental divisor of venture backable businesses and everybody else and start thinking about what are the business opportunities of all kinds to advance these critical technology sectors. Uh, and so that can be building lab to market businesses, but it can also be building process manufacturing firms. It can also be building consulting firms. And, and all of those kinds of different businesses are really important in building a resilient supply chain in these critical technology areas. So that's that's where I see the greatest potential for equity. And it's still focused and it's still not everything under the sun, but it, you know, there's a there's a opportunity to have a broader conversation here. One other thing that and all of this is fascinating. One other area I think we can do a better job of 
to get to the desired outcomes is to incentivize and measure to drive the correct behavior. As in, if we put, if we say that we would like to have greater equity, our incentives and our reporting guidelines and what we measure should have that as a core deliverable or core outcome. So it forces the the collaborative group to say, when we design, we will design the correct way. And, and the reason why I say that is because a lot of the federal government programs in the recent past have been terrible in their design. For example, look at PPP. It took them three rounds to get PPP right. The idea behind PPP was great, but because it wasn't correctly incentivized and the metrics weren't correctly defined, it didn't go to the right people. And so I feel like if we don't start the design correctly, if we don't design with the key components in mind, we will get the dollars out, but we will have several iterations because we will see version one, version two, and version three being incorrect. And I'm not somebody who likes to get it right first time. Part of our company culture is to ship 80% right. And there is a bias towards shipping versus building. So getting it out there is uh, has its own merits. But if we can learn from our past mistakes in how even the recent government programs have launched, and I even look at programs like the Community Navigator program, and I'm saying, okay, we've got $80 billion that are that is going to be launched. Can we make sure we get the design right? And can we make sure that we get the measurement systems in place correct? so that we can incentivize the right behavior. What are your thoughts on how do we measure the, the outcome of, this, of these programs, the short-term and the long-term? The long-term intangibles are clear, right? Like when you look at our um, mission to go to the moon and what that do- did in terms of building all these tangential ecosystems and innovations. But how do you measure short-term? Yeah, that's a great question, David. And I think you know, you point at something really important, which is how can the entrepreneurial ethos inform federal government programs? And uh, really, I think what we're talking about here, just to make it explicit, is how can we apply an agile, iterative methodology to government programs where sometimes the incentives are to put out one big chunk of money in one design cycle? How do we break that up and make it iterative into multiple design cycles? And I think this is what you're seeing um, in things like engines where there were type one and type two applications. This is what you're seeing in tech hubs where there's kind of a design opportunity or the designation opportunity and then the implementation opportunity. That's that's an attempt within, I think, the things that are that are within their control, you know, to create at least one iterative agile cycle in the middle (laughs) and so i think those are all good good attempts and and that these the folks that run these federal programs should be supported in taking additional steps to to build in agile design cycles into how these major federal programs are executed um to your other question which is really about evaluation this is a long conversation but I think it's a really important conversation. Um, and so what I would really point to here um, are, are, is a new philosophy 
for thinking about inclusive innovation ecosystems. And so I would call this kind of like the six laws of inclusive innovation ecosystems. And I don't say laws like like uh, laws that ought to be enforced. I think these are like laws of physics. They're like natural laws of, of inclusive innovation ecosystem building. So the first law of, of innovation ecosystems is that they're really best understood as a collection of stakeholders. And, and so what does it mean to be a collection of stakeholders or a coalition of stakeholders? Well, number one, it means that we're talking about human beings here. And so uh, human beings might represent different stakeholders, and I think uh, they do. I think they really represent one of six groups primarily. They're entrepreneurs, they're governments, they're corporations, they represent capital providers, they're part of uh, a research institution, or they are part of the workforce development system, really. But at the end of the day, they have organizational cultures and incentives that they're beholden to. They have goals, they have biases, they sometimes have egos, they have friendships, they have frenemies. <laughs> so like everything that is true of humans is true of, of actors or stakeholders in an entrepreneurial ecosystem. And that's what makes it really hard, both hard to do the work and hard to predict the outcomes. So the second law of innovation ecosystems is that they're limited, right? not everything that these people or these stakeholders do together is relevant to the innovation ecosystem. And I think this is part of where economic developers often get it wrong. So they look at a model um, and they say, hey, you know, okay, I see that government and corporations are part of an innovation ecosystem. Therefore, anything that government and corporations do together is part of an innovation ecosystem and is relevant. I don't think that's true. I don't think innovation ecosystems are all encompassing and the boundaries of them come from how relevant the activities you're talking about are to the shared goal of the innovation ecosystem that everyone's pursuing together. So that means that you as a group have to make a decision about why you're building or what you're building. Uh, and that's hard to do in communities, but that's what allows you to say, hey, you know, a tax incentive for a new corporate headquarters, while that might represent engagement between these two organizations that are part of our innovation ecosystem, really doesn't have anything to do with what we're trying to accomplish here. Um, that brings me to the third law of innovation ecosystems. And that's really that they're made or broken in the connective tissue between stakeholders. That's the most important thing. So, you know, entrepreneurs and research institutions work together, research and government works together, corporations and government works together, and, and you can kind of have all these different iterations. And the connection points between each of those stakeholders, those really are the programs that we talk about. So when a research institution licenses a piece of intellectual property to an entrepreneur, that's a connection point between you know, research and entrepreneurs. When a research institution licenses IP to corporations or corporations sponsor research, that's a connective point between those two stakeholders. And so you can kind of think through all the ways that you can connect these different people in your ecosystems and then think about how, how open that flow is. And that idea of, hey, these connection points can be pipelines, they can be really open, they can be a place that a lot of activity flows through. So if your community is really great at winning SBIR awards, 
you might have a really great pipeline between government and research. And that's relevant as long as the SBI award, SBIR awards you're talking about are relevant to your critical technology area. Or if your community is not very good at that, that might represent a bottleneck. And so you have to kind of assess that, that connective tissue and how, how good it is, how open it is. And that's part of uh, understanding how your innovation ecosystem needs to grow and change. Okay, so that's like first three laws. You with me still? <laughs> yes, this is fascinating. Yeah, I'm trying to draw a mental image as you speak. We might have to put some in the show notes uh, on just yeah. on these topics. I do have like a crazy person diagram that I can absolutely show you. It it, it looks a little bit. I'm going to be honest with you, David. It looks like uh like one of those boards that they have on the crime show with the <laughs> the the detective that's like way too into their job and they have the the board with all the red strings. Yes. It's a little bit like that, but. Right, but that's what complex ecosystems are, right? So. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and, and maybe I'm way too into my job. Uh, that's maybe another <laughs> lesson we can take there. But I, I, so, okay. So the fourth, the fourth law of innovation ecosystem is that really that they're complex and adaptive systems. Uh, and this means a couple of things that they're unpredictable that they are self-organizing, that they are robust intervention. Uh, and, and this is all uh, part of, uh, you know, a theory that uh, that Brad Feld and Ian Hathaway talk a lot about in uh, The Startup Community Way, which is a book that I would recommend anyone read. Uh, and, and I think Ian has been on your show in the past, uh, probably talking about a lot of these same things. But the reality is when you look at each of these groups of stakeholders in an innovation ecosystem, it's not just one person, right? You don't just have one person that represents all of the research institutions in your community. You have 17 uh, and you have three major research universities and then maybe you have a national lab or an FFRDC or a private research institution and then a think tank. And so at the end of the day, innovation ecosystems are systems of systems. That's one of the things that makes them complex. Um, and, uh, when we think about how this plays out in the world, that, that has a couple of different implications. Well, the first is that, you know, you can talk about this on the human dimension. Anytime humans get together, it's messy and that makes it complex and adaptive, right? Uh, you can talk about it, uh, you can talk about it on a natural dimension, right? Like uh, these systems are very complex, just like nature. And that's why we call them ecosystems. And that's why I think that word is the right word. Uh, but you can also talk about this. And because I am a gigantic geek and uh, MIT alum, I talk about them in these terms most often. And that's in terms of math. <laughs> so uh, don't go to sleep. <laughs> don't skip to the next podcast. I swear <laughs> it's going to be easy. Uh, but but I think it's important to get mathematical about it. Um, to to think about complex adaptive ecosystems. So so David, let me just like ask you a question if you don't mind me turning the table. Yeah, absolutely. Like, okay, imagine a straight line. Imagine an S curve, and then imagine like a totally zigzag line that goes up and down unpredictably. Which of those lines in your imagination looks most like the output of something you do on a daily basis in your life? Well, I am an entrepreneur, and for entrepreneurs, I think it's a crazy zigzag that my employees ask me every day how I do it and they struggle to keep up with, right? Which, But I think it's uh, all of our lives. Uh, nothing happens in a straight line, not even the S-curve. So yes, it 
zigzag That's totally kind right. of how we kind of navigate <laughs> our lives. <laughs> right. So I would call this, you know, like a linear function, a simple line, a simple, a simple system might have a linear output. Like uh, I think the way that Ian describes it in, in startup community way is good. Like it's, it's a recipe you do, you put the same things together at the same ratio and you get the same product linear, you know, a nonlinear system, like an S curve, it's still pretty clear. It might be complicated, but you can get, uh, you can get the same outcome. You can get a predictable outcome. It's that means that it's deterministic. You can determine what the outcome will be. Um, and so like the example that he gives is going to the moon, like really hard math, right? Really hard math, but still doable math. And there is a right answer. <laughs> like you can't just like shoot off into outer space and, and, naturally end up at the moon it doesn't work that way um okay so the last the last piece that i think is important uh is the idea of complexity and so complex systems are non-deterministic and so what that means is that there isn't necessarily a right answer there isn't just one way uh there are many ways to get to that curve that zigzags up and down and appears to be unpredictable there's, there's, there are many ways to, to, to write the math equation that draws a curve like that. Um, and so that's a complex system. And there's one other kind of system I think that is not represented in this construct. That's part of, um, you know, this, this model that comes uh, from a Welsh word, <laughs> um, but it, it, it's, it's chaos. That's the last option, right? And so sometimes look, people look at uh, about at inclusive uh, innovation ecosystems, and they look at how how unpredictable the line is, and they think, man, like why would I even bother getting involved in this? It's so hard to understand. This looks like chaos. Well, it's not. Chaos happens when there's no line, right? But if you think about you know, that Knefin framework, that's the kind of the, the Welsh, the Welsh framework we're talking about here. Um, it means habitat, I think, in the, in the Welsh language, or somebody who actually speaks Welsh has to both like correct my pronunciation and get that translation right. Um, it, what we're talking about here is that there are two of these like simple uh, and complicated systems, those are deterministic, and there are two of these that are non deterministic, they're complex and chaotic systems. And so just like you can't confuse a straight line with an S-curve, you can't confuse a complex system with chaos. And I think it's really important because uh, otherwise it's tempting to kind of take like a, a nihilist view and say, hey, we don't understand it. We can't control it. It's a waste of time and money. Uh, you know, that's an obvious risk to our work. So we have to take the time to say, hey, this isn't chaos. It's just complex. This is knowable. This is understandable. It's just difficult. Um, but, you know, if you look at something like the declining firm formation rate, like if you were to like show a picture of this and I'll try and give it to you for the show notes, David, like you would see the output of a complex system in that, in that graph. Um, and over that time between 1977 and 2015, you know, that's really roughly the time period during which firm formation declined from 17% to 8% annually. And so did, was it that nobody was doing anything during that time to help support entrepreneurs? No, absolutely not. 
I was helping to support entrepreneurs at least in 20, 2012. So like at least one person in the world was that I can say with certainty. I know a lot of other people too. Uh, and a lot of other people that have been doing this work for long before that, right? Was everybody who did something during that time ineffective? No. <laughs> you know, there are some people that did things that were really effective to support entrepreneurs, but still there was complexity in the system that led to that decline in firm formation. And so we have to really think more deeply about it. So this kind of, finally, I'm going to get to an answer to your question. Um, and, and that's like, this is like the fifth law of innovation ecosystems um, that they have to prioritize inputs and not outputs. Because when you think about a mental model for innovation ecosystems, what we're describing here, a complex adaptive system, has no similarity at all to a factory Y, right? And that is the mental model that we have traditionally used to think about products and, and innovation ecosystems along kind of the, the linear theory of change, right? So the idea is, you know, you input $10 million and we run this like, boop, 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 like through the Moretti multiplier, we're gonna create 27,000 jobs at or above the county median wage. Obviously, it's not that predictable. Complex adaptive systems are not that predictable. So this this construct that we've created for ourselves where we assess outputs and outcomes in innovation ecosystems, that is just fundamentally flawed at the base level. It doesn't work. Um, so what can we measure? Well, I think we have to measure the levers themselves. And so think back to, you know, that 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 web of stakeholders that we were describing a minute ago with entrepreneurs and research institutions, workforce development, capital, government, corporations, all working together. What can you measure? Well, you can measure the capacity of each of those, sta each of those stakeholders, right? You can also measure whether things are a pipeline or a bottleneck, whether those those connection points are pipelines or bottlenecks. And I think that's fundamentally what we should be assessing to judge progress in innovation ecosystems. Um, that's, that's kind of the change in the mental model that we need to make from a linear system to a complex adaptive system. Uh, because if you measure outcomes, you're, it's a losing battle. It's always going to be unpredictable. Um, so like last last kind of illusion. Imagine like you're you're standing out with me. You're in Kansas on the edge of the prairie. And uh, you know, it's a beautiful day in the Flint Hills. And all of a sudden you see dust on the horizon. You realize there's a herd of buffalo headed right toward us. Like we're in the middle of a stampede. Well, you know, uh, we have this this uh, saying in Kansas that uh, somebody who's like frozen, sometimes people say a deer in headlights. We say like a frog in a stampede <laughs> like to, to indicate something you're totally powerless over. Like trying to, I would say, for instance, assessing an innovation ecosystem on its outputs and outcomes is, is like putting a frog in a stampede. Um, so it means that stampedes are, uh, they're complex adaptive systems. They're unpredictable. You don't know where the buffalo herd is going to end up. And so if you if you and I are standing here watching a buffalo herd co come towards us and somebody says, hey, where do you think the buffalo, buffalo are going to go? Well, the reality is we have no idea. 
and anything that we we any guess that we make is just that it's a total guess right they're complex so there's many many different actors in this buffalo herd they are non-deterministic there is not uh necessarily one thing they're all trying to do uh they're not stampeding to a place they're just stampeding right um they're adaptive each one of those buffalo is kind of dodging and weaving and and feeling how the other buffalo and the herd are moving they're all making minor adjustments to their paths so that they don't hit each other they're self-organizing right they're 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 running together in the same direction despite the fact that no buffalo said hey you guys let's let's run this way um and and finally they're robust to intervention meaning that if you try to stop a buffalo herd with a linear intervention like a stop sign well you know let's just go back to the frog and stampede thing like probably not going to be all that effective so that's how we're trying to assess this this thing that is like the stampede of entrepreneurship in our communities uh, we're trying to stand here with a stop sign and saying like no you guys head this way that's not how complex adaptive systems work. And in fact, it's a great way to get squashed. Um, and so we've got to total we've got to think about something totally different. We've got to think about sensing the system, modeling the system, not predicting the outcome of the system. Wow, we might have to bring you back for a part two. Uh, this is amazing. Yes, please send us uh, things we can add to the show notes because I think this is very educational. Um, for our listeners. Before we wrap up, I have two thoughts. And uh, one is there is a specific outcome that the awardees of the tech hubs have to be able to prove, right? So there is there is a, a specific set of measurable outcomes they want uh, the awardees to be able to submit in their, um, in their pitches. The second a question for you, do you feel like U.S. specifically and American citizens are in a better place between 1970 and 2015? Do you feel like today, as a country, we are in a better place for all the innovation that we've seen happen uh, over the last, you know, uh, 50 years? That's a That's a good question, and we both are and we aren't. I can't give you just one answer because it's such a complex question. I think if you look at this like on a macroeconomic level, our productivity is higher. You know, wealth uh, is more broadly shared around the world, right? There, there, there are things that indicate that we are better off from 1977 to today. There are also things I think primarily domestically that indicate that they're not better. Things like generational wealth divides have gotten worse, not better. Um, and uh, firm formation certainly has gotten worse, not better. And those are things I care about really deeply. And so uh, the reality is uh, we're talking about, even in this conversation, uh, you asked me a linear question, <laughs> which is, are, are we going up or down? No, and no, no. And I, I'm, I don't... And I'm asking this because because we cannot let the complexity change our clarity on the simple things that matter to us as human beings, right? Are we taking yeah. care of our planet? Are we becoming poorer? Are some of our, uh, our citizens becoming poorer at the expense of others? Because sometimes complexity can be used to hide 
disadvantages that are being created. And that's my only thing is that like everything you say, I'm fully behind, but I feel like sometimes that is used to, uh, to uh, dismiss or to even hide uh, very intentional design flaws in how we distribute wealth, how we, because ultimately no matter all of this innovation is all great. If it just keeps making the rich richer and, you know, U.S. is more advanced, they have more nuclear weapons, they have all of these things, that's great. But is that really how we are going to measure human race, right? Is that how we are going to measure where mankind should go? And if we are thinking about adaptive ecosystems, shouldn't we take a step back and say, what are we measuring as success? Absolutely. And I think we should also be open to the idea that different people will have different opinions on that question. And I think that's what makes this hard for me to answer because you're asking me as just one actor to give an ecosystem level question, right? <laughs> right? Ecosystem level answer. And the, the ecosystem we're talking about here is, is the ecosystem of, of, of ecosystem builders. So to get super, super meta. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that actually this is really a good way to wrap because this is this is aligned with like the last the sixth law of of inclusive innovation ecosystems, which is that they're grounded in collective impact principles. And so when you think of the collective impact model, aligning around a common agenda is the first step. And so often that's also the, the step that we skip. You know, we don't quite get a common agenda. We assume that we're talking about the same thing, but because we're humans and we don't want to be in conflict, we avoid the real conversations. The, the reality is that a lot of the things that we work towards today, uh, especially as, um, you know, I'm making a guess here, but like as progressive people, generally small p progressive people working to build innovation ecosystems and trying to build a more just and inclusive society, right, through that work, there are things that are really important that are intention there. You know, domestic growth in the U.S., uh, which a lot of times is what we're talking about when we think about inclusive innovation ecosystem building, certainly on the local level, that can sometimes negatively impact equity globally, right? Because it requires growing the U.S. economy um, faster than other places, right? Sometimes growing, uh, growing a critical technology area like quantum computing is a heavily energy intensive process, right? That's something that actually might not be sustainable. Uh, something that might negatively impact the planet. And so investing in, you know, really, uh, really heavy computing processes might actually be unsustainable, <laughs> um, you know, because of the, the energy required to run those systems. And so the reality here is that there are a lot of different outcomes, even with the best intentions that you can get in a complex system. And the point is not that there is a way to get everything perfect. I don't think there is. I don't think there's ever a day where we'll be able to say, we're going to build something that is sustainable and inclusive to everyone globally. And, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, maybe, you know, this is this is maybe a little bit of a negative ending. I hope it's. I hope you don't take it that way. Oh no, no, no! It, oh my God, this is fascinating. No, the, I don't. I think this is an important conversation, and uh, I think a useful conversation, right? So, 
uh, I think I am fully in sync with you. It's really kind of asking the the questions that we all need to be thinking about. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think the, the 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 end is that we've whatever it is, we've got to agree explicitly on what it is, and so that requires being willing as ecosystem builders and being willing as communities to make tough decisions. And one of the tough decisions might be, hey, for us, uh, these critical technology areas don't represent the future that we wanna build in our community. So we're gonna opt out of these programs and we're gonna concentrate on building broad access to all kinds of entrepreneurship, not a critical technology area. For some communities that might be well, our community is really struggling with wealth relative to other communities. And so we need to double down on efficiency, knowing that we're going to build a system that's not perfectly inclusive in our community because we think that a rising tide is going to lift all boats. There might be other communities that say, hey, the most important thing to us is environmental sustainability. And so we're going to choose you know, uh, we're going to choose to invest in things, some of which are aligned with these federal programs and aligned with a innovative industrial policy mindset, and some of which aren't, um, with our true north being uh, being environmental sustainability. And, and so the, the reality is just that uh, ecosystem building, I think, is a philosophy of, of managing these decisions that requires really broad input. And the most important thing is, number one, that people talk about a common agenda broadly, that, that that decision is made broadly in a community and uh, and that it is made and that you, you do come to agreement. And so like an example of that might be in Kansas City, right? So let me tell you two stories from, from Kansas City where I'm from. One is a cautionary tale and one is a way of, of doing it differently, which is not perfect, but it's better. <laughs> You know, um, so years ago in Kansas City, when I was first getting involved, um, the city leaders decided uh, that we were going to build a biotech ecosystem that that was really grounded in our ability to support animal health companies as as well as human health research. It's called translational medicine. And so we we're going to build a translational research center and that we needed buy-in, not just from the states, but from everyone in Kansas City to get it done. And so that we were gonna pass uh, a sales tax of, um, to find a translational research center in Kansas City. Um, and there's there's a long tradition of, of passing sales taxes in Kansas City to fund major civic investments, like when we redeveloped Union Station and other things like that. So it's kind of like the typical tool that we use, right? Well, what they didn't do was engage people in the community very broadly in that decision and so when they said hey there's a there's a sales tax on the ballot people who in the city felt like they did not have a chance their kids did not have a chance at benefiting from a translational medicine innovation ecosystem they said this tax is regressive this tax is going to hurt our community not help it uh, and they organized and they brought that sales tax down as they should have right Today, as we're thinking about our Tech Hub application and other things, we went through another process where we assessed what innovation kind of critical technology area we're best positioned to, to 
to move forward in Kansas City, and we decided that it was uh, a similar focus as building uh, synthetic biology or biologics uh, research capacity and, and uh, development capacity and biomanufacturing in the region. Similar to the same thing they, they decided 15 years ago when they tried to pass the sales tax. But we did it fundamentally differently. We engaged you know, a, a cross-community committee in the process. We had community listening sessions. We explored and talked about what are the ways in which equity might be present or might not be present in these different critical technology areas if we were to build it in our community. Uh, and, and really, at the end of the day, I mean, I don't think anyone said this explicitly, but, but what I kind of took away from the conversation in the end was we had a pretty broad conversation that, that asked, do we want to build good jobs now that might not last long? Like, for instance, in logistics, you know, that might be automated out of Amazon warehouses five years from now. Or do we want to build really good jobs that take a long time to get to? in a in a place like biologics and the answer from the community the was we want to invest in the long term and it wasn't unanimous not everyone agreed but we did come to an agreement and that's an example of you know getting to a common agenda uh and and so now we're working on building this tech hub application um you know we're, we're seeking much broader input we ever have before on this work and I think it's manifesting really really differently uh, we could talk more about that another time but but the reality is you know one thing very similar topic areas perceived and communicated really differently in the community with a common agenda at their core and a collective impact model we should definitely bring you back uh, a, f a few months from now you know as these uh, <laughs> as these communities start putting their the tech hub strategies together my only hope in all of this is that it doesn't turn into that amazon hq2 application type where they're investing in bringing expensive consultants to come and write proposals right uh, <laughs> that we do better than that uh, but yeah. uh, but this is fascinating i will uh, stop here and uh, we will definitely bring you back uh, melissa it's been such uh uh, a fun episode. I have learned so much. It's got my mind spinning in five different ways to go <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and work on things that I need to be working on. But this is amazing. Uh, and probably that's why I love this work is it, it that happens to me too. I just, uh, you know, I don't, <laughs> uh, I, there's not enough time in the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, David. It's been such a great conversation um, and really look forward to continuing it with you. I'll also say I should, I should shameless plug here. If you want to continue thinking about these things with me and with our team at FAS, check out our blog um, and subscribe to our FAS newsletter, FAS.org. It's one great way to stay in touch with our work. We will put all of this in the show notes so our listeners can actually subscribe through clicking uh, on the links in the show notes to the blog and to your newsletter. And uh, also, we'll put your LinkedIn profile so if they want to follow you, they can follow you on LinkedIn as well. Amazing. Awesome. Thank Amazing. you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. Special thanks to our renowned guests for joining us. 
You can find show notes, more episodes, send us ideas, and subscribe to our newsletter on our website, economicimpactcatalyst.com. Breaking Down Barriers is a presentation of Economic Impact Catalyst and is edited by Lauren Bernard. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Breaking Down Barriers, available for free wherever you listen to your podcasts.